The 26th chapter of Matthew's Gospel then forms a decisive turning point in the narrative. We've seen the nativity, we've studied together over the last few weeks the great challenge of the Sermon on the Mount, and this Gospel as well has given us many stories of healing and deliverance, great spiritual victories over darkness. But now, suddenly, there's an abrupt change of tone, the beginning of an end game. Jesus has been telling his followers that the time is coming for him to be handed over and crucified. And now this chapter begins with the story that Nigel spoke to us about this morning of the woman who empties a vase of priceless ointment over Jesus' feet to the indignation of some of his followers. It's made clear that she has anointed him for burial. And it's at this point that Judas begins to make arrangements to betray his master. But as much as it seems that darkness is closing in, that everything is ending, to Jesus, none of this is a surprise or a shock. None of this is a failure. None of this is the plan going wrong. He's always said that this is how it's going to be. So what happens now is the culmination of all that Jesus has come to do And in this last meal is not only the institution of a memorial, but a promise of eternal victory. And so, as Jesus' followers ask him whether to prepare the Passover, we see him in verse 18, calmly, stoically, giving them directions. Commentators think that he's already spoken to the man whose house they will use. And as they're eating the Passover meal that we will enact in church in a few days' time and think about in more detail in a moment, Jesus drops the bombshell that one of them is going to betray him. And so as a man, the twelve, asking shock and sorrow if it's them. Surely not I. And in asking that, in saying, is it me?, There's a lesson that they don't learn here. Because in just a little while, as they leave for Gethsemane, Jesus tells them that all of them will fail him. All of them deny it. All of them fall. And it's Peter, the most vehement of these, who falls the hardest. And so, why do they begin to lose the plot so badly? Jesus had explained to them repeatedly that this would happen, but instead of preparing themselves for it, they keep perhaps not truly understanding who he is, not seeing the big picture that this is how it has to be, jockeying for position, failing to grasp things, and so failing to depend on God for strength when they'll most need it. And so they fail, just when Jesus needs them the most. And so, we never know what life is going to throw at us, do we? How our faith will be tested. So here's the question. Will our roots in Christ be deep enough for us to know whatever we're going through, that he's in control and that he's with us? But in verse 25, of course, when when Judas asks, am I the one? He's asking it ironically. He knows full well that he is. Christ's response in the affirmative is given in the NIV here as, yes, it is you. 
Other versions have it as, you have said it. Or the message version very bluntly puts it, Judas, don't play games with me. Jesus has said a moment before in verse 22 that the one who's going to betray him will be the one who dips his bread in the dish with him. But of course, at a moment, like at a meal like this rather, any of them could have done that. John's account of this adds a bit more detail by showing Jesus giving Judas the sop of bread. This was something that a host did for a guest as a sign of favour. So is Jesus, ironically, if discreetly, mocking the traitor as the soldiers with the crown of thorns will later mock his own kingship? Or is he perhaps trying to reach out to him even now? Saying to him, this had to be done, but it didn't have to be you. And if you go through with this, remember that you can still be forgiven. If so, Judas doesn't take the hope that's being offered to him, even now. John tells us that Satan enters into him, and he departs into the night. And so, his last legacy is Christ's words in verse 24 of our Matthew passage. This must happen to fulfil prophecy, but better for the one who does it if he'd never been born. It would have been hard, of course, for Judas to have come back from this, but it could have happened. Paul turned from being a murderer of Christians to one of their greatest evangelists. God's mercy is boundless if only the one who has fallen from his truth will turn back again. And so their last meal together is coming to its end. Verse 17 tells us that the meal that was being prepared here was the Passover, but John's Gospel tells us that Jesus dies on the day of Passover preparation. This seems to be a contradiction, but it's actually not, because the Passover day would have run from evening to evening. And so Jesus holds it at the beginning, whereas the main temple celebration would be at the end. And the meal would have contained many elements which pointed back to the Israelite slavery that we looked at recently in Exodus. Bitter herbs for the condition of slaves, cinnamon for straw that made bricks, salt water for the tears of slaves. There was an apple and nut mixture called chassereth which seemingly represented the mortar used for slaves to build. These were symbols of the life that God had taken them from. And so we know too, don't we, that God has taken us from our sin, from a life with no ultimate meaning to a life founded on the only truth that's eternal, a life in which he is always with us through everything, through good times and through our saltwater times as well. And so, just as there were elements that look back there were elements that looked forward to their fulfilment in Christ's redemption, which he's about to point to when he takes the bread and wine. The Last Supper could have included lamb if some were sacrificed at the beginning of the day. And the Passover lamb is a powerful symbol of all that Jesus is about to do. The lamb of the old Passover, the old covenant, foreshadows 
Jesus, the Lamb of God. We remember again from our recent time in Exodus how it was the Lamb's blood smeared on the Israelite houses which caused the angel of death to pass over them. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. And so, because of his blood, we too have nothing to fear from death. Jesus dies at the ninth hour when the temple would have been sacrificing the Passover lamb. In Exodus, the Jews are commanded that no bone of the lamb shall be broken. And we recall that as how Jesus has died on the cross, the soldiers break the legs of the two crucified either side of him, but don't break his legs as he's already died. And so it's Jesus, our Passover lamb, fulfilling all of this who now takes bread and wine and says, this is my body, this is my blood. The bread taken and broken was almost certainly unleavened. And we can remember from Exodus that this is bread made in haste by a people who are hastily departing from slavery. And leaven remains a powerful symbol of sin throughout the Bible. Jesus tells people to beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And so again, Paul in Corinthians uses unleavened bread as the symbol of the way Jesus has made us clean. The bread broken for us that represents his body, a symbol of our redeemed life in him. He writes, let us keep the festival not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so the bread taken and broken by Jesus speaks to us of all that he has accomplished. And a tradition that had grown up was that there would have been four cups of wine. The cups had various meanings and names, and one of them was the cup of redemption or blessing. And commentators say that it's this cup that Jesus takes now to point us to his blood. And so this is where the Old Testament need to sacrifice animals for sin ends, as Jesus makes a perfect sacrifice of himself and takes our sin upon his shoulders. Hebrews in chapter 9, having spoken of what the old sacrifices did, says this. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God to cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This is his blood of the covenant. And so having shared a meal with so many elements that finally point to what he's about to do, with bread that speaks of new redeemed life and wine of redemption, Jesus gives us this new covenant in his body and blood. And as he commands us to here when we take communion or when if you're coming to the Passover meal that we'll do next week, um, we share that together. We obviously eat and drink to remember his sacrifice for us. But the Lord's Supper also represents a spiritual feeding on Christ that's a huge part of our being united with him in this life now. As he says, this bread is my body, 
It's a spiritual feeding. Again, in John's Gospel, Jesus tells us, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Words that speak to us of the need to spiritually nourish ourselves on him continually through prayer and his word. The reformer Thomas Cranmer wrote this, The presence of Christ in his holy supper is a spiritual presence, and as he is spiritually present, so he is spiritually eaten of by all the faithful. Not only when they receive the sacrament, but continually, so long as they be members spiritual of Christ's mystical body. And so as we spiritually feed on him in communion, so we do in our prayer, in our studies and worship together, in our own time, in his word. And so if the disciples bewildered, surely not I, at the beginning, challenges us about being rooted enough in Christ to withstand challenges, the substance of this new covenant shows us why. Because he has redeemed us and because he spiritually feeds us. The medieval bishop Richard of Chichester wrote a prayer later made famous by a song from the musical Godspell in which he said, May I see thee more clearly, love thee more dearly, follow thee more nearly. The season of Lent challenges us perhaps about seeking ways to draw closer to God, perhaps an increased devotional time, intercessory prayer for so many needs in our own lives, in the lives of those that we care for in the world around us. We won't mention Brexit. Um, In our service to him, whatever it may be. And on Commitment Sunday, we're challenged financially also, aren't we, to support with our finances and with our prayers our church's vision for the year ahead. And again, Hebrews says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. But the last thing that Jesus says here teaches us that we also eat and drink in anticipation. In verse 29 Jesus, having spoken of the covenant in his blood, says that he will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until the day he drinks it with his followers in his father's kingdom. And so this is a farewell meal before the intense spiritual battle of Gethsemane, the agony of the cross. But it's also a promise that Jesus will come through death, that he will rise again, that there's life on the other side. And that as he comes through death, so will his followers in that room, and so will we. His words here have part of their fulfillment in Revelation chapter 19, where it says this, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, that's Christ our Passover Lamb, and his bride, that is the church, has made herself ready. Then the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. 
And so the bride is the church, all those who trust and follow, made ready by Christ's redemption, kept ready by their walk with him. And like all invitations, it's personal because response to the gospel is personal. Not just culture or family important as those are, but personal. You and I responding to Jesus. Christ's invitation to salvation and life in him is given to all. Have we taken it for ourselves, each of us? And God wants those who trust in his son and follow him to be assured about this eternal promise. Because however much we know the truth, there are always those moments of questioning, aren't there? What if I die and after all there's nothing and I've wasted the only life I had? What if it's some bizarre, complete unknown? And it's harder sometimes to hold fast to the fact that God has beaten death for us when we see the horrors of sickness and violence in our world. And so if we need to, It's worth praying through those doubts with God, praying through those moments of nagging uncertainty, either alone or with our prayer partners or whoever, um, just bringing them before God in honesty and humility and letting him, by the grace of his spirit, assure us and help us. And so in this Last Supper story then, the beginning of Christ's passion, a lesson about being rooted enough in him to withstand trials, the final fulfilment of many aspects of the Old Testament that point to Jesus. And finally, this great promise of eternal life, a promise of coming through death, a promise too that although those at the supper with Jesus failed at a crucial moment, and and though we fail too, Christ, our Passover lamb, restores us as he restored them to security in his eternal victory. We're not taking communion tonight, although we did this morning, but we're doing Passover together soon and we'll obviously celebrate communion many more times. But as we come up to Easter, let's celebrate in the security of all these great promises that Christ helps us through our trials, that he intercedes for us, that he's given his body and blood for us. And especially that when the struggles of this life are done, what awaits us isn't just oblivion or waking up in some dark nowhere, but another great promise from Revelation. That the struggles of this life will be no more and we will finally see him face to face, knowing as we are known, living in his light forever. The promise from Revelation is this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there shall be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for these former things have gone.